0: When you're thinking about the civil rights movement, I'm sure there's probably like a few images that pop into your head. Um, There's probably some key scenes that come across your mind that you've seen over and over again. And what many of these images have in common is that most of them occur in urban areas um, across the South, kind of sunbelt cities of migration or specific portions of the state if you're from Mississippi, like maybe you've heard um, about things that are happening in the Black Belt and the Mississippi Delta. Um, But you don't often hear about what happened in rural areas in Northeastern Mississippi. And I've always wondered about this. I've always wondered why these stories weren't told, um, why they're not widely remembered, um, which probably has something to do with the fact that they're not told as often. Um, but there seems to be something distinctly different about Northeastern Mississippi and the counties and the experiences that are there and I think that was something that was always odd to me because um, I imagined that there had to be something that happened there. I wasn't sure. Um, Much of my family left Clay County right before the civil rights movement would have picked up in speed. They would have been a part of those migration patterns. Um, But there are also quite a few people who stayed and there seemed to be a reluctance to talk about the things that happened. And I've always wondered why. Um, And so I wanted to do this project to figure out what it was that happened to figure out if this was something that would make younger people connect to the story more, um, to make people feel the sense of urgency and the sense of really responsibility behind the historical importance of things that have happened in their own community. Um, and if that could transform people's sense of agency, because really I think, um, And my experiences with my younger family members and people my age, maybe a little bit older, I've seen a lot of people who believe that, you know, things have been against people for so long here. And there are so many forces acting against people. And there's never been any kind of real change here. And there's no reason to try because... If you try, they're just gonna stamp you out and it's gonna make things worse. Um, So I wondered if hearing this story and having a personal connection and understanding what happened within a community that's important to um, ourselves can tell us anything. And I also think that after I started the research project and understood this process, I found out that the community here was a little bit different and the actions that were happening here really picked up um, in the 1970s more than they did in the 1960s and they were focused on issues of black power and black ownership and that these were stories that would connect with people that i knew um, but people just didn't know about them and so i wanted to look into this and after i finished my research project i knew that it wasn't going to be sufficient for me to just write this capstone paper or to just write my honors paper because at the end of the day probably like five people tops would read them and that's not really that many people um, and they're all people within academia who really support me and support my mission and think that this is interesting work. but. Is the work that I'm doing impacting people outside of this institution? And if it's not, if it's not helping the people that it's about, then do I really have any business in telling this story? And so I think for me, doing this project has really been a compelling way to understand these things and to think about the responsibility that I have as a researcher to share these stories with the people that these stories are important to. So my research asks about these stories and about the stories from the civil rights movement that aren't widely known or remembered and it also asks why these stories aren't remembered. I chose to focus on Clay County, Mississippi because I had familial connections there but I'd never heard about the civil rights activity. When I started, I had no idea that there was such a rich history of stories of resistance and organizing because the stories were mostly glossed over in one to two sentences in secondary sources. In order to find out what happened and to conduct my research, I consulted multiple archives across the state to find out what primary sources were documented. For many years, charting local black histories was not prioritized in archives. So I had to pull information from multiple places to get a full picture of what happened. First, I started with the Clay County Local Library's uh, local history room. And there, I saw that lack of resources. Um, I really had a, like an experience that I did not expect to have. Um, I walked in, and they just let me at it. They were like, go ahead, look at whatever you want. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. We go into this room and um, the, all I can find <laughs> at first is a lot of information about doing genealogy if your family is from Europe. And I don't think that that was super relevant to a large portion of the community that could be using this local history room. Um, and I think that that was you know interesting to me. Um, in a county like Clay County where it is predominantly black or at least greater than 50% black, um, there's an obligation to be sharing these stories and these things that would be relevant to people um, outside of those genealogies of people from European descendants. And specifically, I think this is really relevant to my project in particular to see this distinction because the genealogy that you have um, in terms of black history is different. And the things that you're gonna be interested in are different, this, you can't trace things back as far. Um, and so really having resources about the civil rights movement and about the particular activity that happened in Clay County, that's genealogy. That is the same type of personally motivated research and those resources just weren't present there. Um, I also struggled with using conventional methods of research in that archive of like consulting newspapers. It was difficult because black stories were not often told. And despite the fact that I found in my research that there were up to three black newspapers in Clay County, these papers didn't get saved and placed into archives. So I also had to consult some other places. Um, And the process of consulting these and understanding what research and what information was important and um, whose perspective to like really take as valid was difficult. Because one of these sources that I had to use was the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. Um, they have a whole database on the Mississippi Department of Archives and History website where you can search the whole State Sovereignty Commission's database, you can see things. um, And there, I found a lot of information. But it was also difficult because the State Sovereignty Commission was a branch of the Mississippi state government that monitored civil rights activities. Um, And they kept detailed records of activities that they thought were going on in counties across the state. And You know, so obviously these reports and these information that I would get in these reports were slanted towards a particular ideology and understanding of things that were happening. They were also accusations. They weren't all necessarily proved or indicated as true. Um, But I did, I was able to use this. um, And I used these records to get a broad timeline of events that were of interest to the state and to understand a little bit of a, um, just an overview of things that might have happened. But I also really wanted to, in my research, consult other sources and see if this was confirmed by other things. So this was helpful in constructing dates and broad points of interest, but I really wanted to keep digging to find more. So I had to go a little bit further in my search. Next, I consulted the University of Southern Mississippi's Oral History Archives. There, um, I was able to find a lot of resources of oral interviews. Um, and I found a project by Terry Buffington, who was actually um, involved in the Civil rights movement. As we get more into the story, you'll hear more about it. Um, she's actually John Buffington's wife. Terry Buffington became an anthropologist, you know, later in life after the Civil Rights Movement. And I think, you know, she came to this from a similar perspective. She had seen all of the work that had gone on in Clay County. She was a young um, teenager when things really started picking up. And then she was intricately involved in the making of the actions that happened there. But then as she came back to Clay County later on in life, she didn't really see um, as much of these things being talked about. And I've I've seen an interview um, that was played on the local news from her that she has documented on on her YouTube channel, which I will link in the description for this podcast so that you can watch it. But she talks about how she really wanted – to be able to understand that story and how that was an integral component in her decision to become an anthropologist, and that this was a driving force and why she was telling these stories. So I think you know it, it comes back to that idea that researchers are coming to these questions because of personal reasons, and that this is really what's driving things. Um, but yeah, so I mean. Those were a treasure trove of information as well. In addition to this, I was able to um, consult the Dora Adams papers and the special collections at Mississippi State University. And as you'll hear further on in this story as well, Dora Adams was an integral part of the movement as well. She was someone who was the leader of the Welfare Rights Organization, and she kept meticulous records of the things that were going on there. Um, And I think just understanding Dora Adams' um, need to write these things down and keep records and save them, and just the foresight that she had for the importance of the work that was going on there and for the importance of recording this work These were people who were really cognizant of the things that they were doing and cognizant of the fact that these stories were important to be remembered. Um, But these were also stories that hadn't been touched by secondary sources. And from my experiences in the community, um, aren't widely talked about. So I looked into them And I consulted all of these resources, I looked into them deeply, and I found so much. Um, But the sad part is, with all that I found, there was also so much more that happened in Clay County that never got documented. And I think that was really, you know, interesting to me. And I think that that's why it's important for me to be telling this story and sharing it so that more people can look into this, more people can see these stories, more people can take ownership in these stories so that these stories can be passed down and so that we can create some sort of hope and agency and understanding behind the things that were, like, happen, and maybe continue to make changes. So... This research can really help contextualize what movements looked like in rural areas and have a deeper understanding of stories that we don't hear very often. So civil rights activity in Clay County really peaked in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And it was focused on making practical changes to economic structures and on armed resistance in order to protect local citizens from racial terror. This project examines how these activities differed from other areas in the state and the difficulties faced by movements after outside support dwindled for the civil rights movement. People in Clay County had a distinctly practical approach to activism that focused on black power, armed resistance through the development of an armed organization developed to protect the safety of the residents, which was called the Black United Front, economic initiatives to develop Head Start programs, an active welfare rights organization, and to the Clay County Community Development Cooperative. This led to increases in welfare funding, the development of economic cooperatives that gave people both job skills and incomes, and an influx of federal funding and support for these initiatives in the county. These programs and organizations were led by local Black citizens who maintained roots in the county long after Freedom Summer which allowed for sustained change and the development of ideas supported by the Black Power movement. So to give you a little background in case you're not familiar with Clay County, um, I'll just give you some statistics about where it was in 1965, and maybe at the end we can come back to what Clay County looks like now. Clay County, Mississippi is a predominantly rural community. West Point is the biggest city in the county and the remainder of the county consists primarily of rural, unincorporated communities. In 1965, the county population was estimated at 18,933, and the city of West Point's population was 8,550. This meant that almost half of the county's population was concentrated within West Point. And a 1964 SNCC research report indicates that approximately 52% of the county residents were black. Clay County's demographics reflect the reality of many rural counties across Mississippi during this time period. The county's rural nature means that there were limited formal institutions accessible to people throughout the county. There were many unincorporated communities throughout the county, which meant that there were not a lot of city governments. This also splits up the majority black areas of the county that lie within these unincorporated communities and makes it difficult for them to make changes through voting in the way that other counties throughout the state may have been able to. Organizers in the area had to focus government reform efforts on positions in West Point city government, as well as county and statewide races. Residents described West Point as a company town during this time period, and indicated that most residents either worked for the Bryant Brothers factory or the Sykes Lumberyard. These firms also had company housing where some of their employees lived on property owned by their employers. This meant that people's livelihoods were heavily dependent upon their ability to keep their jobs, since losing their job would also mean eviction. This was also true for many of the county's rural residents in the communities outside of West Point, who worked for the same companies or farm laborers that predominantly did not own their own land. These companies and farms were the biggest defining institutions that brought people together across the county. Organizers had to be cognizant of the realities that these companies imposed on the community and recognize that structural changes for people in the county meant structural changes within the companies. This can be reflected in the attempts by organizers to unionize both Bryant Brothers and the Sykes Lumberyard as one of the earliest steps in the movement. The first organization around rights for Black people in Clay County started with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, in the 1950s. This work was led by Jack Johnson, a World War II military veteran, but was not widely recognized by many locals and focused predominantly on fundraising for the organization on the statewide level. However, this does mirror the work done in the 1950s across much of the South following World War II. And historians argue that movements to develop the NAACP across the South represented the roots of the Black Power movement Which would later flourish in Clay County. Civil rights workers from elsewhere arrived in Clay County in 1962. At this time, Dora Adams, a West Point resident, allowed a small group of civil rights workers to live in her home. This is just the beginning of Adams' integral involvement in the civil rights movement in Clay County but it is indicative of the fact that she was involved in promoting the movement from the beginning and likely had done some work prior to the arrival of these workers. Among the group of outside civil rights workers, John Buffington, a college student from Georgia who was attending school in Chicago, began to stand out as someone who would direct and shape much of the collective action organized in the movement. Buffington represents the known narrative of the civil rights movement in Clay County, as documented in secondary sources, and was a charismatic leader who did a lot of significant work for Clay County. However, this work would not have been possible without a significant amount of help and leadership from different community members who put their lives on the line. Consulting the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, I can see that they did not begin to keep extensive records or reports of investigations into the civil rights activities in Clay County until January of 1965. Freedom Summer was the beginning of widespread organizing activities in Clay County and their initiatives expanded from getting black citizens to vote to creating black power in the community in a meaningful way. Conversation inside the movement focused on finding ways to make initiatives relevant and impactful to Black citizens and their daily lives, and activities focused on working within the economic and political system that was currently operating. Another resource that I was able to find was a 1965 interview with John Buffington by the KDZU Radio Project at Stanford University. And I think the interesting thing, looking at this project by Stanford students, is that during the Civil Rights Movement, telling stories via radio interviews uh, was something that was prevalent, and something that was a way that we documented stories, and that these are also the archival resources that we're able to still look at today. Um, So there's a tradition of telling these stories and amplifying these stories and amplifying people's voices via the radio or recorded voices. Um, This was something that was a way that allowed people outside of Clay County to see what was going on within this. And that this is something that was important both in the modern day but also in preserving and saving the story for the people of the future and i think that's why it's compelling to be doing this project right now because it mirrors much of that work that was done then and you know these are tactics that were done by a lot of different people um but that these are some of the things that get left behind. And so documenting this and this process of intentional documentation of what's going on during this movement is clearly something that a lot of different people were thinking about. And that this is something that we need to be thinking about. We need to be asking. And are we documenting things in our movements and our resources and the things that are happening right now in these movements? And this period in time, are we capturing those things right now? And if not, why not? Or are we capturing them in a way that will be sustainable and passed on to the future? And I think we have to ask about who's complicit in these decisions and who is responsible for making these things happen. And it's institutions like universities that are saving so many of these resources. So we need to be telling universities and telling people, hey. This story is important. Hey, this thing going on right now is important. I need to document this phenomenon. And I need you to make a commitment to the community that you're going to save these resources. And I think for me, that's why this project is so important. So looking at this interview with John Buffington um, by the KDZU Radio Project at Stanford University, I was really able to get some insight into the thoughts and motivations of the early parts of the movement um, that would then shift and morph into the coming programs and initiatives that occurred in Clay County throughout the rest of the 1960s and 70s. The interviewer asks Buffington about why he thinks the movement in Clay County has been cited as so successful across the state of Mississippi. This seems to be an indication to me That in the time period, there were other people looking to Clay County, who were as representative of achieving success and alignment with goals that were more widely sought after. This sentiment is echoed in John Dittmer's Local People, where he cites Clay County as having one of the most active SNCC chapters in Mississippi by the end of 1966. So this tells us that this was a community that was uniquely important to Mississippi, and that we... Really, the story that's here is something that was relevant and impactful to people and that we need to preserve this story because without it, what will we know? What is lost, you know? In this interview, a few key things are discussed that provide a frame of reference for understanding where the Civil Rights Movement in Clay County starts off in 1965 which are important to analyze and remember as the movement takes shape in the late 1960s and 70s. First, Buffington discusses the importance of following models and working within organizational structures of the civil rights organizations during this time period. He primarily discusses following models set up by the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and their focus on starting with voter registration and then working on practical initiatives to build black power and understanding within the system. During this time period, Buffington also had strong organizational ties with SNCC as well. And there was discussion throughout the interview about how to merge the differing organizational ideas of the movement. Looking back at this now, we can tell that in 1965, this interview takes place at a crucial moment for the Clay County Civil Rights Movement. With the end of Freedom Summer and many of the original goals of voter registration having been successful, the determination of next steps would determine whether or not progress in this region would continue. Especially looking at this distinction between the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the development that would come with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to move closer to black power in the late 1960s and early 1970s you can see that John Buffington grappling with this and grappling with these decisions um, is really indicative of the way that this movement is going to take shape. Many civil rights workers who came from outside places were beginning to leave areas across the South that they had been heavily involved in, which would leave many places with only local organization. Buffington comments on this and comments on this phenomenon specifically in Clay County when he is asked whether or not he plans to stay in the county for the long term. At first, he mentions wanting to return to school, suggesting that he may leave Clay County for a few years, but records following this interview do not show any evidence of Buffington leaving for a long period of time during the next decade. This, paired with the commitment of local residents to taking an active role in leading the movement, ensured that there would be efforts that persisted after outside Freedom Summer volunteers left the state. When asked about the involvement of northern outside agitators, Buffington makes a specific point to point out that the black volunteers were not outside agitators in the same way as they may have been in other counties. While some of these Black volunteers had spent time in the North in places like Chicago, as Buffington himself had, he emphasized that these people had roots in the South. He specifically discusses this in reference to John Leslie, saying, quote, He stayed in Chicago about two years, maybe, and let go of Chicago when he came back down to work in the movement. He's a Mississippian, just like I'm a Georgian, End quote. This continuity of leadership sustained action in the movement throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s and ensured that the volunteers working for change in Clay County could feel the long-term sustainability and success of the project. The question of violence was one that had to be addressed by all movement locals and activists. For Clay County and activists like Buffington, The issue was how violence affected what black people in the community could practically achieve for themselves. The ability to protect and defend their own community became a defining point for black people in the Clay County Civil Rights Movement. Any participation in the movement was associated with a level of risk that there would be a white backlash of violence against those involved as well as their families and other community members. From the records I found, three activists died In Clay County between 1965 and 1970 because of this white backlash. There were multiple incidents recorded where the Freedom House was shot, crosses were burned in yards, and the Clay County Community Development Cooperative was bombed in 1970. The police were not willing to give this community the level of protection it needed and defending themselves in order to survive fell in line with this movement driven by the most practical and basic needs for the community. And it doesn't get any more practical or basic than the need for survival. Rudy Shields, an activist who did work across Mississippi during the late 1960s and 1970s, discusses his emphasis on both economic restructuring and armed resistance, saying, quote, There are only two ways to get through to the white man. One is by boycotts. A boycott is an effective way because you are taking the dollar out of the man's hand. And... Rather than lose his dollar, he listens. Violence is the other effective way, actually the most effective, but it causes innocent people to be killed in the process. In order to not take lives, we boycott. End quote. While Rudy Shields was based in nearby Monroe County, there is documented evidence that Shields and Buffington were in contact with one another and that Buffington brought shields into Clay County in order to lead an armed resistance during times in which activists were killed or targeted. The Clay County Community Development Cooperative, or the CCCDC, as I'll refer to it for the rest of this recording, is one of the institutions that activists organized to create change and an economic institution that was led by Black people for the Black community. This organization echoes the sentiments discussed by Rudy Shields and shows a clear integration between ideas of economic restructuring, armed resistance, and a desire from people in Clay County to merge different beliefs from the civil rights movement. Roger McFarland, a local resident who was involved in the development of the CCCDC, talks about how Freedom Summer influenced their decision to create an organization in West Point that operated outside of existing organizations, working for the civil rights movement having local control and leadership over the activities in Clay County was becoming more important to people involved than the benefits that they would get by working within existing networks across the state. This can be seen as a distinct shift from what Buffington saw or described during the KDZU interview for the movement prior to the end of Freedom Summer. Roger McFarland talks about the murder of Freedom Summer volunteers in Neshoba County which is a pretty fa- famous event that you might know about, as a turning point for the state, as well as for the movement within Clay County. In an oral interview in 2006, he says, quote, and so then we had to get away from feeling like everything was supposed to be nonviolent, that we had to pack something sometime, and so we did. We did have to carry something with us, and we would say we had to protect ourselves, At that time, the Black Panthers came out with another slogan saying, quote, move on over or we'll move on over you. And Stokely Carmichael said, quote, if you hit me, I'll hit you back, end quote. So now we had all them different organizations that was coming up at the same time and into one. So I ended up and organized the CCCDP, end quote. For McFarland and those involved, this quote shows that clearly, um, The development of the CCCDP was a direct response for the racial terror and violence that those involved in the civil rights activities faced. Economic development and success, black-run institution building, and armed resistance to violence were all inextricably linked in efforts in Clay County. The Clay County Welfare Rights Organization was a contemporary to the CCCDC, which also worked on creating economic reforms for the county. Consistent records for the Clay County Welfare Rights Organization begin showing up in March 5, 1970. Throughout the years of 1970 to 1978, Dora Adams is clearly documented as coordinator for the Clay County Welfare Rights Organization. She and Reverend Eddie Brooks organize a statewide conference at Mary Holmes College in November 1971, which becomes the beginning of a statewide welfare rights organization that Dora Adams is an integral component of organizing throughout its existence. Records from 1970 show that the local welfare rights organization was successful in its organizing prior to 1970. Despite the fact that there were less records available for this time period, minutes from a March 5, 1970 meeting give a list of the major accomplishments of the organization up until that point, reading, quote, 1. We are responsible for a raise of the welfare check, Two, we are responsible for Medicaid going through. Three, we are responsible for the free lunches been affected. Four, we are responsible for the food stamps been doubled. Five, we are responsible for the housing being lower. Six, we are responsible for our organization been going on together. Seven, what I am saying is we must be earnest and true. We've got to encourage people to stand up and vote. Don't we wait for something to hurt ourselves before we move? If we or one of our neighbors is in trouble, let's move quickly right away. If anyone comes to try down, let's move him or her. While I couldn't find a lot of specific information about the specific ways in which the organization carried out these goals, this gives a clear vision of how the organization saw itself and the role it played in the community. And this is uniquely important to the story because the Welfare Rights Organization really had a clear sense of its importance, a clear sense of its relevance to the community, and a clear sense of purpose and responsibility for the things that were going on in the community. And it was clear that they felt that they were being successful in achieving this. And this can even just be seen in the way that Dora Adams keeps these meticulous records of things that happened with the Welfare Rights Organization. But not only does she keep meticulous records of the big, wide-scale ideas and thoughts, but she keeps meticulous records of individual complaint cases that the organization address. And this shows the specific commitment of the Welfare Rights Organization to address individual concerns for people within the county, And how important creating agency and a sense of purpose and a sense of community within specific people was to the development of this movement. It's clear that this organization has a distinct purpose and that it saw itself as a separate entity responsible for different community initiatives than the CCCDP and other movements led by John Buffington. This is not to say, however, that these organizations are entirely separate or not communicating with them and one another, because this can be seen that they were. Um, it's clear that they were having contact. The organization does vote on representatives yearly to serve on the board of the CCCDP to represent the welfare rights organization. Um, But there's also another interesting thing that comes in analyzing the differences between the welfare rights organization and the CCCDP. Members of the WRO were predominantly women, whereas leadership within the CCCDP were predominantly men. And I think a deeper analysis of the differences between these two organizations can shed light on how organizing activities and desired outcomes of these activities Differed across gendered lines within the community. You can see this even in the differences between the way these two organizations portray themselves and the records that are left behind about them. You can see that John Buffington is this public face, he's this persona that is really important and crucial to the community. Um, But like many other important people to the community, He doesn't keep these meticulous records of what's happening. The records that we have of John Buffington are records of newspapers and reflections and accounts of other people. Ironically, the thing that happens in history is these people that we see as really important often don't have the time to document these things and to document their thoughts and feelings or at least to preserve them. And I think that that's a multifaceted thing, and I think it would be interesting, and obviously this is entirely speculation, but John Buffington seemed very clearly invested in preserving his image. And there's a role for that in the movement. There's a role for preserving your image and maintaining yourself as a certain figure in order to be able to lead and push people in certain directions. And I think that that attributed was attributed to and contributed to a lot of the success of the movement but it also means that you don't get a fully human picture of these people you know you don't really see all of the thoughts and the feelings and what's going into that I think throughout this process one of the things that I really wanted to know was like who are these people reading what are they thinking about What's, what's going through their mind at any given moment. And we don't have a journal or anything like that that really humanizes and makes clear what Buffington was like as a person. And I think that that's interesting. And I also think that that's why I feel that recording this podcast is relevant and important and why the documentation of things is relevant and important. Because... Maintaining a complex and diverse and difficult image of things is critical to making these things relevant to people later. Relevant and relatable and understandable and something that can be used and understood. And I think like, I just want something to come out of this research that's important and relevant and can move and motivate people in the future. And I can see the value in a podcast in providing a complex and unique way to approach these stories and being able to tell so many different pictures and different sides and different avenues. And it's not tied up by the strictness and the boundaries and the organizational ties of a paper. And while that's incredibly frustrating, because it's really hard to edit these podcasts, and it's really hard to put these stories together, it's also really rewarding, because these are the human stories, and the human ways, and the ways that things are actually playing out, and the thought processes that are going on within our heads, because the thought processes that are leading to the understanding of things and the thought processes behind and all of our research and all of our work and the motivation behind the things that we are doing it's just as important as the things that have been done and i think that's why this project has been so frustrating to me because I don't know. Like, there's so much stuff that we just don't know. And I don't want to misinterpret. And I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't want to misinterpret the facts of the story. I don't want to misinterpret the context of anything. And I don't want to appropriate a story that's not mine. But I'm also left piecing together and making these decisions about how to bring all these pieces together and what stories to tell and whose stories are relevant. And... God, I don't think that's my job. But for some reason, I also do think it's my job. And I, I question what it is that makes me think that it's my job. Like, is it some white savior complex driving me to do this? And no. I think that I just have to be cognizant of my own identity, cognizant of the things that I'm doing that are impacting the stories that I'm telling, but cognizant of the way that I approach the world. And I think that's why making this whole podcast has been so difficult. I want to make sure that people understand who I am, where I'm coming from, what my intentions are, and how this shapes the story that I'm telling and the story that's relevant to me. Because to me, to tell this story and to tell... You, what's happening here and to tell this like to tell why I'm telling this story in this way you have to understand so much about who I am as a person and I think that's what's frustrating is within academia is we don't we don't have that relatable content we don't have something that you can dig into and understand and really know where people are coming from and why they're telling these stories these ways And we have to interpret so much and we have to make in these decisions and pick and choose. And this happens throughout history and people are making decisions and picking and choosing different stories and telling different stories that are important to them. And because academia is like dominated by certain voices, we're losing so many stories. And, you know, the things that we pick and choose as important to us are critically important. They're critically relevant. They're critically... They're just... They're critical. That's what they are. But... When we are excluding so many people from these systems and these movements and these moments, are we ever hearing all the stories we could hear? This is not to say that understanding things from the master narrative is not... In some way, relevant or important. But it is to say that we need so many more people doing this. I don't think that my podcast will become important for the specific way that it tells this story. I don't think that the specific nuances of the story that I'm telling are the most important or the most relevant way to share this story. I think it's all arbitrary it's like I had a year, one year, to look at this question. And during this year, I had so many other things going on that took precedent for me. I had major health issues. I had major personal issues. I was being the student government president. I was being an RA. I had my brain stretched in so many directions and I think that frustrates the hell out of me because I'm like, I was not able to do this story justice. I was not able to dedicate within a year this time that it took to really give this story the resources and the attention that it needed, but I think that's true for anything. I think that's true for any research project. Anything that you do is really what you can do within the time periods and the time constraints you have. And my advisor tells me this all the time. It's all arbitrary. Where we start is arbitrary, where we end is arbitrary. The way that we pick and choose things is pretty goddamn arbitrary. And that's so frustrating when you think that these stories are so important and relevant to tell to people and you want to preserve these perspectives and ideas and thoughts and you want to capture the humanness of it all. And I think that's the irony is at the end of the day, we're all just human and we're all just telling a story and we're all just telling the story from our own perspective and we can only say so much and we all start somewhere and the place that we start is pretty arbitrary it's both very intentional you're thinking about these things you're thinking through it you're working through it you're working through all of these deep questions you're asking them And all of these questions that you're asking are contributed to by the identity that you have. These are all things that you're asking because of who you are and how you approach the world. You might ask something because of the specific experience that you had. And in one way, the entire creation of the universe and the entire creation of yourself and everything that has led you up to this moment is incredibly intentional. But at the same time, it's entirely random. It's entirely separate from this. It's entirely arbitrary. All of these things just happen in one specific way. And it happened to bring you to this moment and bring you to this time period. But what if it hadn't? (laughs) What if you had done something differently? And I think, you know, for me, that's the real kicker of this whole research And this whole podcast, and I think, you know, how is it that we overcome this? I don't know that we do overcome this. I don't think this is something that can ever be overcome. I don't think I'm the only person who's approached a research question and not been able to dedicate an ample amount of time to the research question. Because what the hell is an ample amount of time? what is an ample amount of time to dedicate to a very important question that plays into the livelihoods of the thing that you're studying? And that's just it. That's what makes it human. That's what makes it real. That's what makes all of this important and relevant is just the nature of the process and the fact that we are exploring more perspectives and we're thinking about more things. And so while I don't think that my podcast will tell one specific story that is the story or is the narrative, and I think two years from now, if I've looked at these documents more closely and had more life experiences and thought about more things and just had more documents even, or had different resources that I was able to access at a different time in my life, the story could change drastically. And it's not the story itself that's important, but it's preserving... Well, the story itself is important, but it's not the way that I or any one individual tells the story... It's the collective action of revisiting the story and interpreting the story and thinking about this story in a compelling way. And what makes it compelling to each individual person. And why someone would approach this research topic. And why you make the decisions that you make. And I think that's why this podcast seemed like something I needed to do at the end of my like capstone presentation, Because I just didn't feel that the things that I was saying or the things that I was doing had really contributed fully to telling the story. And I think that's what research is. It's a process. And we have to be honest with ourselves and the stakeholders in this research about what we are capable of doing and what we're sharing. And we have to make these things accessible to other people, especially to people outside of academic institutions, because that's where the real magic happens. The magic of whatever happens and comes out of this project is not what I am doing myself. While it is deeply important for my own personal development, it is important for how people perceive and take this work out into the world, and that's what's relevant. And so that's what I find compelling. Overall, the Clay County movement was led by a dedicated group of individuals whose commitment to Clay County outweighed any of their own specific organizational ties who were dedicated to advancing initiatives in the community that focused on clear and practical ways to create impactful change in the black community. They addressed economic issues by creating a Head Start program, a welfare rights organization, and a Clay County community development program. They created a Black United Front to defend against racialized violence and create a sense of safety against the racial terror that was created in this time period. They focused on getting black people involved and engaged in the political system in order to eventually get black people to run for these political positions. Their work is complex and interrelated. It touches on many different facets of the civil rights movement and shows that people in Clay County were intentionally thinking about how their initiatives impacted and interacted with other movements while working towards their own goals. And wow. Reading through this pre-scripted thing that I wrote like three months ago I can see that this is the thing. The method and the way that they told the story and they created a narrative for Clay County is indicative of the way that we can approach things in the world. We can all find our own role, our own specific focus, our own specific perspective. But the power comes in bringing it together and reconciling and understanding how our beliefs and interests interact with people inside of our tight-knit communities, our close-knit families. It comes down all the way to your personal family interaction, and then it goes to your communities, your smaller communities, your university communities, your classroom communities, your community that you build wherever you're going. But then... It comes down to how this interacts with the communities outside of the places that you are. All of these things are deeply relevant and deeply important. And reconciling these things together is what made this movement successful. And I think capturing this in a podcast is impossible. Capturing it in any amount of time is impossible. Unless we were exactly there, exactly experiencing these things... Fully capturing this essence is not really something that we can do. But the difficult and complex interrelated nature of these processes signifies the importance of continued research and discussion of Clay County, which has largely been main ignored in the mainstream civil rights narrative. And I hope that I've given you a small glimpse into Clay County. I hope I've given you a small glimpse into my own life. I hope I've given you a glimpse into how these stories and how research can impact the things that we're doing. And I hope that you can take this and that you can apply this to your own interests. But that you can also consider these people and consider these stories that are going on as a way to approach your own interests. And I think that's where the power and the magic and the wonderful nature of like a shared research community comes from. But we need to be sharing this research community wider than academia because otherwise... We're never going to get a wide variety of people involved in this conversation. And I think that's where I'm frustrated. There's only certain people who are being let into these conversations. And why are we only letting some people into these conversations? Why aren't we making these conversations accessible to everyone? And why are we amplifying certain stories over others? And honestly, it's all pretty arbitrary, but it's all pretty systemic. Because everyone's individual arbitrary choices are benefiting specific people and specific groups of people that look like themselves. And if we don't have this representation and accessibility in our communities, then are we ever getting to have a deeper understanding of any story? And I think that's where I'm coming down on it today. And I didn't know, when I started recording today, this afternoon, that this was the conclusion that I was going to come to. But... I think that's all part of the magic. But, one more thing. One more thing. I don't know that it's magic. I don't know that I should say magic. I feel like saying that it's part of the magic, or it's that it's this or that it's pretty arbitrary as well, like, you know, saying that it's magic ignores the intentional decisions that we can do and the things that we can intentionally do, the decisions that we can make in order to approach these questions. And so, as much as everything is entirely random, we have our own decisions to make, our own inferences to make, our own understandings to create. And I encourage you to seek out more diverse understandings and groups of people as scary as that part of the research process is, That's the important part. And if we're not doing that, and if we're only staying in the realm of what's comfortable, we're doing ourselves a disservice, but we're also doing everyone else a disservice. And we have to hold ourselves accountable because these things are important.